Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Has American Christianity Failed by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We are on the chapter of justification, and we're going through the parables. We've done um, the lost sheep, the lost coin, um, and we finished up last week with the lost boy. And to illustrate our passivity um, in terms of our repentance and conversion, that this is something God does in and through us. The, what is the sheep responsible for doing? Getting lost. That's, that's it. Um, there's, there's a kind of activity in the lostness there illustrated. The sheep trots off on its own. Um, what is the coin responsible for doing? For, you know, I once was lost, but now I'm found. What did the coin do to get found? Absolutely nothing. And that kind of illustrates a passivity in our condition that, you know, we're just fallen. Um, just incapable of doing anything positive, even. All right. And then, of course, the boy, uh, more nuanced, the prodigal son, he walks away. Um, he comes to his senses based on how far he's fallen. He kind of comes to his senses in the middle of the pig pen, in the middle of the pig slop. It says, I'm going to return home. He has a very penitent heart and attitude, um, not even worthy to be a son. You know, just the sight of his face and this, this pleasing humility is such that the father wraps him up in a clean robe and treats him as a son. And so we talked about that. And um, even there where, you know, obviously the son comes to his senses. Well, what brought him to his senses? His wretched circumstances. And we can see that in our own lives and the lives of others. Sometimes they won't hear anything we have to say about Christ or the gospel or the forgiveness of sins. And you kind of say to yourself, okay, I've got to wait for God to do a little more work in their lives. And sure enough, a few months, a few years later, they've fallen on really hard times and suddenly they're receptive to that. And, and I think if we're, if we're a little autobiographical, we can even look back at periods of time in our own life where Hey, I was too proud to hear that, or I wouldn't have heard that, or I walked away from that, or it wouldn't have meant much to me. And then the circumstances in life became as such that you suddenly hear it, receive it, love it, cherish it. Well, we'll jump back into this, um, look, taking a look at, again, refreshing our memory with some of the scriptures teaching about this passivity. Take a look at the activity as well. But before we do so, let's begin with an invocation of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. All right. So as I said, um, let's just spend a couple minutes looking at looking at kind of repentance in um, in these two different categories. Now, there's some overlap with these categories. There's different ways. You know, when you look at the scriptures, here's what we see. We actually see repentance used in a number of different ways. And you really kind of have to go to the context to determine what's being said. In some instances, in the broadest possible sense, repentance is just simply conversion. And it includes what we would call um, law and gospel. Okay, And then from the, from the receiver's standpoint, the law creates within us a kind of contrition or sorrow. And the gospel creates within us a faith and trust in salvation and righteousness in Christ Jesus given to us. 
You see how that works? So in the broadest sense, repentance just means conversion, and it holds both law and gospel. If you're looking at it from the angle of the, of the speaker, of the doer, if you're looking at it from the angle of the receiver, the hearer, um, then it's going to be uh, this sense of contrition, sorrow, and then faith in Christ. All right. Well, we can narrow repentance down a little bit more, and we can talk about it as chiefly the work of the law. Well, really, so the work of the law comes, and it strikes us with a, with a kind of terror and knowledge of our sins. You know, and I think one of the kind of ways of illustrating this is, we didn't sign up for it. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't, you didn't wake up and say, you know, at about, at about, uh, at about 10.30 a.m., you know, after I've had my coffee, so I, I'd like to be terrified over my sin and fall down on my knees on the sofa and weep tears over who I, you know, this comes upon you by God's word some, and by your circumstances and by your reflection on your circumstances and God's word and who you've been and, okay, all of this is worked in you. It's entirely passive. So there's this narrow sense, narrower sense, in which we can talk about repentance as being God, what something that God does to us in and through his word and in and through our experiences, kind of working together with that word. Okay. And again, we're gonna we're gonna focus here on the passivity of this happening. You know, no one you if if I and sometimes like you kind of you hear preachers, we all make this mistake. It's like it's like, you know, weep for your sins. Okay, well, I'm going to sit there and make myself weep? No, I mean, you can't. You can't make yourself weep. Okay, is there anything wrong with that kind of rhetoric, though? No, because that rhetoric's communicating something to you. You know, it's saying, be contrite, humble yourself, okay? Now, um, insofar as we are converted, okay, God has given us his Holy Spirit, He's put a new man within us. Now we can talk about repentance using the same word in an even narrower sense. Okay. And that's kind of what we stumbled upon just a moment ago. The narrowest sense in which we can use the word repentance is in a, is in a kind of cooperative sense. Okay. That is, God's word comes and says, humble yourself. And you say, I'm going to humble myself by fasting. So you're cooperating and you're saying, okay, I'm going to have this, this kind of outward sign and discipline. You see this in the scriptures where they tear their clothes or pour dust and sack, or yeah, dust and ashes over their head and, and maybe they wear sackcloth, which very uncomfortable. Okay. So you've got this, you've got this sense of cooperating with the repent. Maybe a clearer New Testament example. Paul says, Examine yourself. Now, you remember this in 1 Corinthians. It's in the context of the Lord's Supper. Examine yourself as to what it is that you're receiving, the body and blood of Christ, and why you're receiving it for the forgiveness of sins. And what sins are those? So you examine yourself, St. Paul says. Now, notice the active language. Because you're a new man, you are capable of cooperating. You've been given a new will. You're capable of cooperating in this. Paul doesn't say, sit back and let God examine you. The language wouldn't even make sense. Sit back and, and wait while you're examined. Um, no, examine yourselves. Repent, humble yourselves. You know, don sackcloth and ashes, okay? These kinds of things that call for a cooperative repentance. And, and really what that is, it's a kind of 
crucifying of the sinful flesh that is within us. It's really what it is. Okay. Um, now, Wolfmuller isn't going to touch really in this section on that last narrowest way of thinking of um, repentance because why? Well, in the first place, because this is a chapter on justification. And what we're talking about when we talk about the narrow cooperative repentance, examining yourself, donning sackcloth and ashes, ashes, we're talking about sanctification. We're talking about the good work that God is working in and through us, the new creation, the killing of the old man, the raising of the new man. That's what we're talking about. That's all in the sphere of sanctification. When we're in the sphere of justification, it's entirely passive. God's doing all the doing. And in fact, remember, if we, if we start to confuse sanctification and justification, if we start to confuse my cooperative repentance with I have to do this in order to be saved, see, combining active repentance and passive repentance, when we combine those, guess what we lose? The gospel. We lose grace because now it's by works. It's by my cooperation. You see, so we always keep these categories very separate, very distinct. Um, we spent earlier weeks, I mean, especially those of us who might be tuning in online, we spent earlier weeks, almost an entire class period, I think, articulating this distinction between justification and sanctification. It's that important. And it also really kind of does well because it's one of these kind of frames that serve you very well in theology because now all we're going to say is we're going to plug passive repentance. We're going to say that's repentance when we're talking about justification. Active repentance, we're going to talk about that in sanctification. Faith passive, okay? that is faith that simply receives Christ. It's not a virtue. It's not like God says, okay, well, I don't see anything in you, but I see this one shining jewel called faith. It's the one virtue that justifies you and makes you better than all the other men. Is that how faith is? No. Faith simply receives the things that are Christ. Okay? It's passive. It's a, it's a cup that's empty in and of itself, not worth anything in and of itself, except for the fact that it receives what God gives. See? Um, so in the sphere of justification, we're going to talk about faith in its passive sense. But now, as soon as we jump over to sanctification, we're going to talk about faith in its active sense. We're talking about growing in faith, faith being weak or strong, right? Great or small. Um, you see, so um, we can talk about faith in these two different ways, and they really fit this, these same categories of justification, sanctification. So, um, if you're understanding all this, if you're tracking with all of this, um, then this is, this is, again, is, is what we're doing. We're, we're seeing the biblical data, all the way that the, the Bible talks, and we're making sense of it. We're making these categories that come from the Bible so we can make sense of it, so that we can articulate, you know, what is it, what are the, what are the Judaizers do in Galatia after Paul has come to and established the churches in Galatia? He's preached the gospel of the free forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. And then in behind him come these teachers saying, well, Paul had it almost entirely correct. You know, he's an, he's an apostle, but we're super apostles. Um, and, and the thing he forgot to tell you is that you need to be circumcised and, you know, kind of fulfill the ceremonial aspects of the law as well. Okay. So, then when Paul deals with that, he says, he comes back and he, who has bewitched you? Who has taught you this other doctrine? 
if you would be circumcised, thinking that that's what your righteousness, that's what your justification is going to be, then you've, you've fallen from grace. You've added a work into that grace, into that justification category, and you've destroyed it. You've fallen away from grace, and now you're doing something totally different. Okay? So, again, these categories come to us um, straight out of the Scriptures and straight out of um, the language and argumentation of the Scriptures, and they're very, very important for being able to keep our minds straight on these, these absolute these questions of absolute importance. All right, before we go on, um, any questions? you have anything I can clarify or anything you want to add that you know has helped you? I see a hand up front here. Are we, um, and then maybe another hand. Are we, uh, so there's a hand up here. And then, um, thank you. Um, so the faith, the passive part of faith is comes from uh, grace and the gospel. So also, and the active part of faith, it requires work. Yes, yeah, it's it springs forth. I mean, from God, He's the primary cause. It's not like God suddenly goes away in the equation. He's the primary cause, but because he's created a new will within me, a new heart with new desires, I'm cooperating with that um, so that it's God and I together as a fellow worker with God, as the scriptures say. Um, but of course, to whom goes the credit? God, if God withdrew himself from that equation, it'd be utterly worthless, right? Um, the uh, Book of Concord also brings up a really helpful analogy to articulate what this cooperation with God, what this active faith is not like. Okay, The example they bring up is the example of two oxen pulling a cart. Okay? If, you have, if you only have one oxen there, it, it can't happen. And so the two oxen are equal in terms of their pulling. And the confessions want to say, this is not a good way of looking at our active faith. Okay? Um, more kind of like, you know, and the confessions don't use this example, but more kind of like um, my, uh, here, how about this? When, when my son uh, was, was very, very young, um, could barely even walk on his own, we'd throw him in a backpack on my back, and then I'd go mow the lawn. He was mowing the lawn with me. Was he there? Yeah. Was he gripping my shoulders? Oh yeah, he was helping me push, right? Um, you know, all analogies break down, but he's actively participating in something that is quite obviously primarily my work. And that, that is a kind of analogy window insight into the fact that, yeah, God has us doing the doing, but he's the one affecting it all, doing it in and through us, allowing us to participate in that work that, properly speaking, is his. And yet we're not going to back away from that language that we do, in fact, actively participate and take part in it. In fact, Christ tells his disciples, he gives us part in it that our joy may be full. Um, so God takes us along as his little children and says, here's what I'm going to accomplish. I want you to do it with me because you're going to love it. it. Does that help kind of make sense of that active paradigm or? Yeah, also, but also uh, in our part, you know, with our old Adam is fighting with that mm -hmm. work, mm -hmm. with the new desire that we want to please God. 
And that's where bring us, you know, sinfully take credit mm -hmm. on what we're doing because it's, it's really, I don't want to do it. But, oh, well, my desire is not to do it, but I want to do it to please God. So that is mm -hmm. kind of, you know, we take credit on that. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of a fine distinction that can be made there. The scriptures just unashamed talk about seeking out that which pleases God and doing that which pleases God. And so there's a sense within us that, you know, converted to God, loving him because he first loved us. We want to be like him. We want to do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, obviously, we fail and fail terribly. The good that I want to do, I do not. The evil I don't want to do, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, my Lord. But we can seek to please God without falling into this error. Hey, God, I did that good work you wanted me to do. And I, I guess you got a huge, huge bonus prepared for me in heaven. In fact, here's, here's your bill ahead of time. Um, <laughs> you owe, now you owe me, God. Now you're in my debt. You know, this kind of, that's completely alien. Completely alien. Okay. So we can seek to please God without seeking to be justified in his sight on the basis of our good works. It's two different things, right? Um, it would be kind of an, again, to use the familial analogy, it would be like my son being like, now you have to accept me as your son because I just set the table. You were my son before you set the table. You're my son after you set the table. And whatever this idea is, it doesn't make it much sense. You know, what are you trying to do? They earn your way into being my son? I've already given it to you, you know. Okay, so that's the, that's the same kind of ridiculousness of taking our works into justification. Or, and we can do this too if we just get confuddled and confused in the place of sanctification. We start thinking in terms of God owing us or our sanctification being what keeps us in God's good graces. I mean, all of this is a confusion of sanctification and justification or a confusion of law and gospel would be another way. Confusion of faith and works. Yeah. We can seek to please God without being self-righteous. And that really is the path set out before us. Um, again, kind of the where I ended last week. Explain it to me like I'm five version of this whole thing is if you've got something inside of you in which you can boast, you've done it wrong. <laughs> right? If you're, our only boast is in Christ Jesus. Now, Obviously, we can go out and serve God and we can do good works and we can remind ourselves what Christ himself says, that not even a cup of cold water will lose its reward. I mean, the smallest conceivable thing that you didn't even notice you did, God's up there keeping score, checking it down, writing it down. So there's great comfort because we confess to him, I'm an unworthy servant. I haven't done a single good work. Every last good work that I've ever done has been tainted by sin. I've got no boast before you whatsoever. And God looks at that and says, I, I credit you with the righteousness of Christ. I cover all your deeds and your whole life in being with the blood and righteousness of Jesus. And now all I see are the things that, yeah, I worked in and through you, but I see them and I crown them in you. This is Augustine's great statement. Not, he crowns his own works within us. So not only does he sort of do them in and through us, but then he rewards them. And we're just this recipients of this double grace. So anyway, these are all different ways that Christians have thought about it. But it, just to make it all simple, if you're boasting in Christianity, you're doing Christianity wrong. <laughs> yeah, You want to do whatever your theology is, make it so that you're not boasting. Um, 
and then follow the word of God. Follow, don't be afraid where it says that we can seek what is pleasing to him and do what is pleasing to him. Don't, don't be afraid. When the word of God speaks that way, don't be afraid to speak that way. There's nothing wrong with speaking according to God's word. Yeah. Please. So last week, I mentioned something about the difficulty with sanctification when you feel that you're going higher and you're oh, making yeah, progressions. Yeah. Well, my friend Becky, hi Becky, she's listening. Um, we've been talking back and forth. We got to a place where we started saying, now go lower. So instead of going higher, go lower. Keep going lower and lower. And that's really helped because that keeps you from going into pride. You just say, I need to go lower. And that's been working for us. I just yeah. wanted to share that. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, count, you know, count all others above yourself. Uh, it's a great point. And Paul himself, St. Paul himself says that he is the chief of sinners, the greatest sinner. And, and Paul's wonderful illustration is if God can have mercy on me, then he can literally have mercy on anyone. <laughs> I'm the bottom of the barrel. Now, this is why we love St. Paul so much. The irony, of course, is precisely his willingness to confess that makes him shine all the more. You know, this is where, this is just the wonderful strength of the gospel dynamic. The wonderful strength of God's grace is a lot of the traditional ways of thinking are turned upside down. The more you humble yourself, the more you're exalted. The more you exalt yourself, the more you're humbled. So it's a great point. Thank you. Um, one hand back there, and then we'll get you, yeah, we'll get you the mic up here. Yeah, one of the local mega churches uh, famously asks, uh, how many people have you saved? Oh, yes. <laughs> Yes. Well, the last time I was on the cross, it was only five. It was kind of a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah good point. Good point. Yeah, it just, just seems like boastful. Yeah, a little boastful. A little <laughs> boastful. And um, yeah, a lot boastful. Plus, I'm just, I mean, I don't know. Luther Lutheranism is just so, even if, it's a, even if I overstay it a little bit right now, it's just such a more wholesome, freeing way to think and live. I mean, what is that way of thinking? Like, if you didn't save anyone, quote unquote, oh, right? You. If you didn't bring anyone to Jesus, then how valuable was your life? Not. It was a failure. You have to go into heaven kind of with your head hanging low. <laughs> I mean, what a miserable theology. Um, nowhere do I see in the scriptures God saying, hey, go out and save everyone. It's your responsibility to convert everyone. What the scriptures say is lead a quiet and peaceable life. Yeah, yeah, we share the gospel. Yeah, we give a defense for the hope that is within us. But our life takes on the vocational shape and form that God has given it. Are you a, are you a father, mother, husband, wife? Are you an employer, employee? What's your station in life? Go about, go about this in a godly way. Let your, let your light so shine before men that they give glory to God. Like, this is humble, small, quiet stuff that the world despises. What does the world love? Big Hollywood bombastic stuff. The music swelling. The tears are flowing. You saved this soul. You know, it's just this big bombastic. Um, I mean, God be praised if you convert someone to Christ. But if you've converted someone to Christ, you hardly like, you know, get out your pocket knife and put a notch in your belt, partner, because I just nailed another one. You're welcome, Jesus. You know, <laughs> what is, where is this? You know, like, yeah, saved another one. Chalk that one up. Where does this come from? It's the most egotistical, contrary to the Christian spirit ethos you can have, I think, while still trying to do evangelism. You know, so it really like even Saint Paul. Like, think of what he says. He says, um, "I planted, 
Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Could it equally be, I planted, Apollos watered, and nothing grew? Yeah, because the growth is completely dependent upon God. And, and there we're talking about the growth of the crops of the field. We're talking about the growth of the kingdom of God. Conversion is up to God. So, again, analyze this with me. Paul is given to plant. That's what he has control over. Did you plant? Not, not did anything come up. Not was there, a, was there a fruitful crop. Just did you plant? And Apollos was given to water. He wasn't asked, did you plant? He wasn't asked, did you reap? He wasn't asked, did your watering produce a fruitful field? He's just given to water. You see, we're all just given these small parts to do by analogy. I mean, this is most applicable to the pastoral office, of course, because what can I do? I can't convert or save anyone. He's given me to preach and administer the sacraments. He's promised that he's going to give whatever growth he sees fit through such planting or watering, as, as it were. But he's the one who's going to give the growth. He's the one that's going to determine that. He's not going, when I get to heaven, even as a pastor, he's not going to ask me, okay, how many souls did you save? He's going to be, were you, he's going to say, were you faithful? Did you plant? Did you water? Okay. That's, that's the thing. I, Cause I'm the one who gives the growth. What a freeing, beautiful, delightful thing this is. And then, and then this trickles down to all our vocations because God isn't going to say, okay, okay, I see that you believed in me. I guess you're in. Now let's see if you're going to live in the, in, in skid row of heaven or in the fancy mansions of heaven. Um, how many people did you save? I mean, it's just not what he's going to ask. Nowhere in the scriptures do we ever get this idea. Um, where, where God looks at us is he looks at us vocationally in terms of the, our office and station in life. And these are the things that please him when he fulfill, when we're fulfilling those vocational callings. Being a good father, a good mother, a good husband, wife, worker. And of course, Luther's point is that these are just as valuable. In fact, even more valuable than being king of a nation or president of the United States, pope over the church or, you know, influential pastor, more valuable, more precious, more treasured in God's eyes is a good husband and a good wife, obedient children, faithful parents. That's more precious. In fact, all the other stuff, church and state and all the hierarchy therein are only to serve these things. See, you can start to see how upside down God sees it all. What would be a point that illustrates this? Remember all the people coming um, to the treasury outside the temple? And you can just hear it as they're slamming their bags of coins down. It's just chunk. There's 20 pounds of coins hitting, you know. Um, another guy's like ceremoniously untying his and like, you know, doing one of these. So it's like, ching, 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 you know, like the most possible noise you can make, you know, just huge sums of money. Everyone's like, oh, you know, it's okay. So there's this quiet moment where nobody's paying attention, not even Jesus' disciples. Nobody's looking at anything. Everybody's just, you know, watch a squirrel, you know, and, and Jesus out of the corner of his eye sees this woman come up and she slips up and without ceremony, she tosses in something that doesn't even make a sound. And she walks away. And Jesus goes, stop everything. Look at what just happened. And he stops, he stops his disciples and he says, that's it right there. She's given more than all these others combined. And there's a beauty in this because it's not just straight up merit. What she does, remember, in giving her, in giving her might, 
what it says she gave all that she had. Everybody else gave out of their abundance. She gave all that she had. There's sacrifice in what she did. And so reflected in this little humble, worthless offering that nobody gathered there would have thought was worth anything. And they all would have thought God despised it. In this tiny little thing is a reflection of Christ's own self-donation. It's a Christological giving. Just as Christ gives everything he has in order to cleanse, this woman's heart is converted to where, in a microcosmic way, she's emulating that. She gives sacrificially everything that she has. Okay, and then this little work that is, that is of no account in the eyes of men is absolutely praiseworthy in the eyes of God. And so, so this is then where we start to see vocation is upside down from how we think. We think, well, what could be a higher, more elevated role than being king of such and such a country or being a bishop of such and such a church? And it's like, no. Highest in God's eyes is the quiet little humble family where everybody's fulfilling their vocation to the best they can. That's the precious treasure, the invaluable treasure in God's eyes. So there's going to be a lot of surprises on Judgment Day, not only in terms of like who's in and who's out and the fact that we truly are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from all works and merit, but then also when it comes to kind of this, okay, you're my child, that you have the foundation of Christ, let's see what you've built in your life, and it's going to be very different because that's going to be a whole second level of surprises. I have, a, I have a sense and a feeling that the people the world has worshipped as great saints filled with good works, I'm not necessarily saying they're going to be at the absolute bottom, but they're not going to be elevated the way we think they're going to be elevated. And who God is really going to praise is going to be some anonymous widow who put in her might, some little housewife out there who held her family together by her piety in impossible circumstances. Some man out there who overcame what should have been a predestination into prison for the, and simply overcame that and worked as a janitor and a gas station attendant and whatever else to put food on his family and did so by his piety and faithfulness to God. And nobody praised him or thanked him. In fact, they all just thought he was kind of a miscreant and, and a low life. Um, yeah, this is, this is the secondary surprise that's coming of God's grace when he looks at us in a way completely antithetical to how the egotistical, hierarchical world looks. So, anyway, sorry for the long digression on that, but it's, it's to say, like, if you want good works to do, you don't need to go out and save people. If you want good works to do, you don't need to go join a convent or a nunnery. You don't need to, um, you know, start a church. Or do some big giant bamba, you know, bombastic thing. All you need to do is quietly, humbly fulfill your task. Think of Mary. She's not doing anything bombastic, and God just says, you. Even there's a kind of beauty in Luther in this, um, as we're all Lutherans. Luther wasn't like, his nailing of the 95 Theses wasn't anything, no I mean, it was, a, it's about like me, like posting something, you know, hey, this is what we're going to study next week in Sunday school. Uh, just really super perfunctory, Activity. He's just fulfilling his vocation in a small way. And what does God do? Bam. So, yeah, we want to go about our business and entrust our lives to God. He's going to do what he does in and through whom he chooses. And that's his business, not ours. For our part, live a quiet, peaceable life doing your vocation. Please. I was just going to add to everything you were just saying that I like the verse where Jesus says that you gave me a cup of water. Mm -hmm. when I thirsted. You, you know, and the guy's going, huh? 
yeah, yeah, yeah. When do we I do these things? Do. When, when do we do I... these things for you? Yeah, yeah, there's surprise on the part of this, the, yeah. the sheep, the lambs. So it's really the, the most humble and the most, just like the lady or the woman with the, you know, that you were just talking the about. It, yeah, the it's, widow's mind. Yeah, widow's mind. Uh, it's really, you, you, you don't even notice it. Right. Right. So. Yeah. So, so again, just to, to kind of like zoom back out now and look at this thing. Um, there's two errors we want to avoid. There's almost always two errors, at least in theology. But there's two errors. We want to avoid, on the one hand, this sort of like chest thumping. Thank you, God, that I've done so many good works. Here's your bill, please, when you get a chance. Um, we want to avoid this kind of boastful meritorious attitude. What is the throw the baby out with the bathwater error on the other side? There are no rewards. It doesn't matter. Live however you want. In fact, the height of your piety is impiety. Cuss, swear, drink too much, and claim that you're justified by faith alone. And, you know, and live antithetically to virtue or the Christian life. When people bring up that God is paying attention and, and will reward even a cup of cold water, um, pass that up, pish posh, that's just a bunch of self-righteous, uh, meritorious stuff creeping back in. Get that out of here. I don't want to hear that. There's the two errors. Right? Truth is right in the middle, rightly distinguishing between these two. Um, in, in such a way that, again, all glory goes to God. There's no boasting in us. And yet we recognize that our lives have meaning and God is, in fact, pleased when we live in accordance with his will, no matter how small, quiet, insignificant, flawed that may be, as it always is, right? Okay. So, um, if there's nothing further on this point, uh, we can jump into, back into the text. And we're going to look at the two parts of repentance here on page uh, 100. And, of course, um, he's echoing, he's echoing the small catechism. And now you're going to say two parts of repentance. And right off the bat here on page 100, you're going to see in, in great big bold print, Contrition is knowing that we are sinners deserving of God's wrath. Okay, so this is the first part of, con of repentance. Contrition. Sorrow, to be contrite. Knowing that we are sinners deserving of God's wrath. The second part of repentance, if you drop down near the bottom of the page, the second part of repentance is faith. Okay, so in what sense are we using the word repentance now? We're not, we're not talking about the narrow repentance of examining yourself, fasting, putting on sackcloth and ashes. We're not even talking about that other sense in which the law does its work and we merely feel sorrow or contrition. That's only one half of the equation. We're talking about the widest sense of repentance that encompasses both contrition and faith. That's viewed from our standpoint, viewed from God's standpoint or from his preacher's standpoint, law and gospel. Law that affects contrition, gospel that affects faith. Okay, So we're talking about repentance in the widest sense here. We're talking about conversion, and then we're talking about sort of living out the converted life. Uh, um, you know, and, and Wolfmuller gets at this at a number of places in his text, but this is one of the mistakes of 
American Christianity is it views conversion as if it was this one-time event, and if it actually truly happened to you, it'll never happen again. Remember when you, quote-unquote, gave your life to Jesus? If you really truly gave your life to Jesus, you never give your life to Jesus again. That's it. It's a sealed deal. That's your conversion. This is where some of the question like, when did you come to Christ? When did you uh, convert? When was your moment of decision? When were you saved? Right? That's where all this language comes from. This idea that conversion is a one time. Okay, what's the Bible going to say? So the very first of the 95 theses is this. When our Lord Jesus says to repent, he willed that our entire lives would be lives of repentance. In what sense is Jesus using the word repent? Conversion. Contrition and faith. God wills, Jesus wills, and teaches that our entire lives should be lives of conversion. So every day is conversion being lived out. Every microcosm, do I write that nasty email or not, is conversion or not. So it's, it's this whole idea that our whole lives are lives constantly living in the state of ongoing conversion. Ongoing what? Repentance, conversion has two parts. Contrition and faith. So as long as we're alive in this world, we're seeing these two things inside of us as Christians. Contrition and faith. Alright, that's the point coming right out of the scriptures, coming right out of Jesus, coming right out of the Reformation, coming right out of the small catechism. Um, central, central aspect of uh, our daily experience. Um, constant and ongoing contrition. I mean, so that when Luther's, uh, you know, when, when people ask Lutherans, um, when were you saved? <laughs> what are the Lutheran answers to that question? It's not like at the, at the Harvest Crusade in 1971. It's, well, one answer would be, before the foundation of the world when God elected me? <laughs> That's when I was saved. Or how about 2,000 years ago when Christ died on the cross and took away the sins of the whole world? That's when I was saved. How about when I was baptized? When God claimed me as his own and, and took the cross and applied it to me directly so that I'm so united with Christ that his death is my death and his resurrection is my resurrection. I was saved in baptism. All of those are good answers. Um, when were you saved? Just a few moments ago, and I plan to be saved a few moments from now. <laughs> it's a constant, ongoing salvation. I am in a state of perpetually being saved. Um, so we have uh, more fluid and dynamic answers, all of which are meant to be more biblical and to subvert this idea that your conversion as such, this one-time event, which comes out of nowhere, like locks you in. And then from this kind of comes the once saved, always saved stuff. Because if that was your one time, I mean, the Bible doesn't talk this way. But if that was your one time thing, then it only makes logical sense that you could never fall away from that one time thing. Of course, you run into the problem when Jesus says you can and don't. And when, when the apostles warn of the devil, if you can never fall away, why would they warn of the devil as if he's a, a a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but here's the secret, he can't devour anyone. That's not what Paul says. Um, so we have to be on guard. We have to realize we can fall away. We have to realize that we need to be every every day living in contrition and repentance. That's every day living in conversion. Thus we are in a perpetual state of convertedness, a perpetual state of repentance, a perpetual state 
of, um, of being saved. All right, that helps us flesh out what the Bible teaches and what, what the Lutheran Church teaches over and against our kind of American backdrop here. So, first part is contrition. Um, maybe let's just drop down to the uh, last paragraph uh, uh, before we get to the second part of repentance faith. So, if we're in that paragraph, um, Wolfmuller writes, A troubled conscience says, I have sinned. A terrified conscience says, I have sinned and deserve God's temporal and eternal punishment. A troubled conscience asks, What should I do about my sin? A terrified conscience asks, What is God going to do about my sin? A troubled conscience is natural. A terrified conscience is supernatural. The work of the Holy Spirit to, quote, convict the world concerning sin. That's what Jesus says the Spirit's going to come do. One of the three things he's going to do. John chapter 16. The terrified conscience then is the result of the preaching of the law. It is contrition. This is the first part of repentance. Okay, so, so here we're really zooming in on this. What is Wolf Miller trying to do? He's trying to articulate the difference between how, a con how the conscience works, how God works in the conscience in a believer, whereas the believer feels terrified and cries out to God for, a, for righteousness and atonement that the believer knows he can't have. And Wolf Miller's articulating this against an unbeliever. How does that conscience work? Unbeliever's conscience, as soon as you get a bad conscience, what do you do? in order to salve your conscience. Yeah, you go do a good work, or you justify it away until you feel better about it. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about the difference here. He's just articulating the difference between a, a kind of faux or fake repentance you see in an unbeliever who like they have an ability to say, oh yeah, I feel bad, I shouldn't have done that, I'm gonna go work an hour at the soup kitchen, great, I feel better, I'm a good person again. You know, um, Versus what that looks like for a Christian and he's articulated it so well, but it's a terrified conscience that says, I truly deserve temporal, that means present earthly punishments and eternal punishments, and I should justly receive these unless God will have mercy on me and make atonement for me through his son. Grant me that forgiveness. Let's get you a microphone. So in my profession, my retired profession, um, I run a, across troubled consciences a lot. Mm -hmm. And my idea when I'm listening to you is that because they aren't believers, it's impossible for them to get to the terrified state. They don't even realize it. They don't know. And, and, and I'm even wondering if we talk about the terrified state, if they're even able to comprehend that because they have no belief. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and the answer there is no. So Wolf Mueller's point's going to be that it requires, the, no being they cannot be contrite in this deeper spiritual sense, but that contrition, properly speaking, is worked by God through his law. Yeah, through his law. Because the law is what's going to say, um, hey, what's going on in your conscience, your troubled conscience, is a reflection of a much more profound objective guilt that you are answerable for in, in truly concrete ways in this life and or the next. Um, that's the shift from, I feel bad because I didn't live up to who I think I am, you know, kind of a psychological or being troubled, as Wolf Miller's put it, versus a being terrified, recognizing the full depths of my sin and what that means, which is available um, only to us through God's law. 
Now, if we... Which if, is given through his word. Correct, correct. Because that would be the missing component. I, I'm thinking of one individual that I wrote to you about a year or two or three ago. He just could not get beyond... He was kind of terrified, actually, when I think about it. Mm -hmm. And yet, I could not... I mean, we spent a couple of years talking, you know, and I could never find the key to unlock... And he was free enough where we could talk about faith and religion mm -hmm. and actually even admitted that he knew who Jesus was, but not in the same way that I have been taught mm -hmm. who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. um, and so I found it so troubling and difficult to move him because he knew in some ways he was terrified. But I also see that, you know, a lot of his language reflected the troubled way of, of, of announcing mm -hmm. that. But when we got really deep, he was actually quite terrified because some of the stuff he was doing was against the law. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, I, I never could find a key. He still, I was thinking of him just today, you know, mm -hmm. of how to move him, yeah. you know, along. And now I'm looking at it and thinking, again, I, I was just the waterer or whatever, and right. I can't, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's what we, you know, a lot of us kind of acknowledge is we've reached someone at us, you know, someone has come into our life or an opportunity to speak with them has come into our life such that we can only, sometimes it's even called like we say planting seeds, you know, I, all I'm doing is planting it. Hey, why don't you follow that, that train of thought to its logical conclusion and get back to me, you know, or, or, Hey, I, you may not be ready to hear it, but I want you to know that Christ has died for all of your sins and that you have a God who loves you. Uh, you know, this this kind of thing, and even if it's kind of met with like an instantaneous change of subject, <laughs> it's usually how it happens in polite society. Um, you just let that be a seed planted and, and see, and then yeah, maybe someone else comes along and waters it. You know. Yeah, this is um it's kind of part of the mystery of God. It's but it's also part of our humility. You know, again, just hearkening back to that previous conversation, it's never up to us to save anyone. That's way too grandiose, and we have to be humble enough to say we're God's tools and instruments, and weak and lackluster. And if it's up to us, nobody would ever be converted. I just got caught up too with his repetitive sin and how organized it is, and I can see why it's not. Yeah. Understand the plot himself. Yeah, the, I mean, the art of what you're really talking about is kind of the art of the care of souls and trying to bring about repentance and, and faith in somebody or contrition and faith in somebody. That's very challenging. And, and it's sometimes, even when you do everything quote unquote right, it's just still you realize conversion is up to God. The success of these things are, are up to God. Um, but but this is um, this is also something that you know, is, is lost in our understanding of the pastoral office. Once upon a time, the pastoral office was understood as, as, you know, you go to, you go to your doctor when your body's so tangled up, you can't fix it yourself. And it's the same kind of with your soul and with these deep spiritual things, you know. And of course, in our, in our modern time too, you've got, you get this understanding that, you know, our minds, um, as, as having a biological substance can, uh, and so, so we go to, we go to counseling to have, Behavioral strategies and thought, strat cognitive strategies and medicines and that kind of thing. And yeah, so I think there's validity in all of these approaches, but this kind of the, like the deep untangling of the soul has um, is a pastoral art that we've you know largely lost. 
largely lost, especially when we're critiquing here Christian America. You know, how many American Christian pastors are there out there who would understand anything of this? You know, they'd say, hey, think positive. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Okay. Please. Well, there's a word at the beginning of page 100: awareness, and I think. For most sinners, myself included, there's, there's a world around us that tends to justify sin or put it in context. Like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, that happened because blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But when you have a total awareness of how horrific mm -hmm. sin is, mm -hmm. there's nothing you can do. Right. Nothing. Right. And that does bring you to your knees. Oh, yeah. And sometimes you don't feel it. Yeah. But eventually, I know, I felt God's forgiveness. Yeah. And that's a very powerful thing because it is kind of passive. Yeah. There was nothing that anybody could do. It it came from God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I can't even explain it. But it's a total awareness of how horrific sin is. Yeah, absolutely. And like the person that was being discussed, I mean, the world tells us constantly it's not that bad. Right. God will forgive it. Right. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, re I reflect on some of the language and imagery of the Psalms of having your, f you know, having your feet stuck and, and the water coming up over your head. It's this, it's just this realization that you cannot extricate yourself and that you're, you recognize that you're suddenly drowning in your own sinfulness and there's no way for you to see out. And that's, you know, that's when we're seeing things most accurately and we call out to God to save us and, and we recognize our entire dependence upon Christ for our salvation. You know, these, these moments of clarity <laughs> are given to us by God. And I think too, in some sense, you know, and, and I'm not alone in this, some of, especially maybe the later, uh, more modern church fathers have kind of spoken this way. One of the graces of God is that he doesn't allow us to constantly see ourselves in that state so that we can even function, <laughs> you know, so that we can go about our vocations. It's a grace of God that he hides from us our own sinful condition um, so that we can actually, you know, we're not spending every single day just weeping and saying, <laughs> you know, woe is me. Yeah. who I was talking about, which I shouldn't, but anyway, um, is that the law's written on all of our hearts. Yes, correct. And this fella, and I, you never, no one will ever figure out, I'm giving you enough, was Jewish. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he, and, and a very highly practicing one. So he had the law. Right. What he didn't have was the gospel. Yeah. Which yeah. in this, he's got, the part that can terrify, mm -hmm. but then the second part of repentance of faith. Right. Yeah. So that's a, that's a great point. Um, you know, Wolf Mueller brings up a couple of examples from the scriptures: King Saul and King David. Um, they're both guilty of very egregious sin. They both experience a kind of repentance. The law comes to them and drives them to despair of their sin. 
But what's the difference between Saul and David? Saul won't receive the absolution of God, won't receive the righteousness of Christ gifted to him. David will. So when analyzing those two, you could say that Saul has contrition. He has the first part of repentance. So does David. David becomes contrite. Does Saul have faith in God's forgiveness, God's grace? No, he doesn't entrust himself to that. Does David? Yes. Another example, um, very acute, is um, and maybe my favorite go-to, is when you look at um, the passion of Christ. Um, he's betrayed not only by Judas, but also by Peter. And so you have these two icons and types. And, you know, in a sense, every human being is either Judas or Peter. Um, so they both come to the point of contrition. They're both struck by the law and the magnitude of what they've done. Um, and what does, what does Judas insist upon? I'll take things into my own hands. I'll enact justice upon myself by, by, you know, the wages of sin is death. By putting myself to death, I've performed righteousness. Um, what does he have? He has contrition, but not actual righteousness because he doesn't have faith. He doesn't have trust that God will have mercy on him. So contrast that to Peter, who equally betrays our Lord. Um, premeditated three times over, betrays our Lord. And yet, um, so he has contrition, full contrition. When the Lord calls him and restores him, Peter receives this in faith and allows himself to be forgiven. And so he's got um, contrition and faith. So when we're talking about repentance in this, in this broadest category, we could say that Saul has the first part of repentance, but not the second. Judas has the first part of repentance, but not the second. And you can see then how we're using this even synonymous for conversion. The first part that's required for conversion, contrition, um, is present, but not faith in those two men. Whereas for David and Peter, there are champions because... They are those who recognize and acknowledge their sin, but then receive the grace, the forgiveness, the righteousness gifted to us in Christ Jesus. Yes, thank you for that. Did I see? Did I see one more hand? Um, did you want to make a comment or? Well, I just going to say, personality. God gives us a personality. So. God gives us a personality. You were saying. Yes, mm -hmm. because that that determines the outcome remember in nehemiah we just finished up and i told you i like the guy because he pulls the hair yeah the other one is <laughs> <It> was, uh, <laughs> yeah the other one is jonah because he goes through nineveh mm -hmm. and he preaches the wonderful message and they repent so it's it's a mystery of god because like you said why did the people rent i mean the wonderful message that he preached for nineveh and yeah, they repented. Yeah. Jo <laughs> Jonah, the passive-aggressive preacher. He has, finally has no other choice other than to get like swallowed by a whale again. And so he goes and he preaches one of the shortest sermons in the history of man. Repent or God's going to destroy you all. That's what you got? Yeah, that's what I got. Amen. <laughs> and then God works through that, right? Yeah. Yeah. How long do you think Jonah worked on putting that sermon together? Well, the vicar and I, we slave each week and put in our 15 or 20 hours on a sermon and we get up there and preach it. And, you know, but, but what is God showing through all this? It's not the efforts and labors of man that convert or do anything. It's 
him. And, you know, I mean, it's very similar. If, if, if he can speak effectively through the, the mouth of a donkey, right? He hardly needs my eloquence. Remember how he corrects Balaam through the donkey he was riding upon. Yeah. So this is, all of this is a testimony to the fact that even when we fulfill our vocations faithfully, and God's pleased with that. He's pleased with us spending time on our sermons and doing the best we can. And, um, even still the effectiveness of that is fully within his keeping. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this is a good place to end. We're in our last minute or so here. And this is a good place to end with, with Wolf Mueller and, um, kind of resonating with a thought I made earlier, a point I made earlier. Page 101, um, the uh, third full paragraph, we're just going to read the first few lines. Wolf Miller writes, American Christianity understands repentance as a unique and monumental event, something that happens once or or a handful of times. You know, that's kind of if you, you give your life to Jesus once, but it doesn't quite seem to take, maybe he's dropped it. <laughs> so you got to give your life to Jesus again. Maybe that time you were only 99% genuine because um, life didn't get better for you. So you've got to give it anyway. Um, you either, it either happens once or a handful of times in a Christian's life. The Bible, on the other hand, Wolf Mueller points out, understands our entire life as a life of repentance. And again, what is the definition of repentance? Contrition and faith. Contrition and faith. Um, so our entire life is a life of repentance, of conversion, of contrition and faith. And so this whole idea of when did you get saved, it's like Christ is presently saving me now. I am, he is, he is, um, by his law causing me to be contrite, by his gospel causing me to trust in his forgiveness and his atoning death on the cross. All right. That sums it up. The entire life is a life of conversion or repentance. The Lord be with you.